step inside my living room Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height In the height Put it all in the height Hi, this is Avram Rosenzweig and you are listening to Hat Radio. Welcome back. This is episode 7. And uh, how wonderful it, it is that my guest for this episode is my very dear sister, Javi Rosenzweig. How are you, Javi? I'm great. Excited to be here with you. You're Javi with a Z. Rosenzweig with a Z. That's right. Yeah, I'm Rosenzweig with an S. Right. Has that created problems for you over the years? No. The only issues are that people think that our cousins are actually David's cousins. In other words, cousins from my husband David's side of the family, as opposed to cousins from our side of the family. Oh, okay, okay. And since David and I um, were not related, um, therefore, my cousins, our cousins, are not David's cousins. Right, okay, so that's confusing as hell. I have no idea what you just said, but (laughs) (laughs) but that doesn't matter, does it? (laughs) It's not my life. So, what I'd like to do before we dive into the interview about your life, of which this will be, I would say, a most riveting interview. We're going to learn about you as my sister, growing up in a similar family, that family being one that was ensconced in outreach. We're going to learn about your later years coming to Toronto, ultimately marrying your soulmate, David, and unfortunately losing David. Um, so, we're going to cover quite a bit of ground, and uh, I would say to the listeners that this will be very, very unique interview because you're a very unique human being. Thank you. Yes. As are you. Thank you. You fought very hard to overcome some tremendous adversity, and I think you've done a terrific job. Thank you. You're welcome. But before I do that, I want to just ask you a very quick question. I just wrote an article for the Canadian Jewish News about loneliness. And loneliness is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Um, And it's a real problem to the extent that the British government actually just appointed, or 2017 or 18, a minister of loneliness. Isn't that interesting? Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. And obviously that person's responsibility is sort of determining what sort of loneliness exists in Britain and how they can overcome that so that people are not uh, so alone. Right. Because apparently loneliness, according to medical journals, can cause dementia, can cause heart disease, all those awful things, right? right? So, what do you think about that, a Minister of Loneliness in the UK? Um, Well, I think that's a great idea, and I think perhaps the word to be used is not overcome loneliness, but Mm -hmm. to initially address loneliness. To address it. And I, I think that there are many, many ways to address loneliness. Um... And people, uh, you know, have to want to be on board Yes. with that because I think that there are many different types of loneliness as well. So I think it's a very big topic. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably something that will 
take a number of years to really, really get going. Um, and I think that it would probably create a tremendous feeling of hope in people to know that loneliness has been recognized as a, a real um, problem in our society. Very much so. I think yeah. so, too. Yeah. Uh, one in five Canadians, apparently, are considered lonely. There's yeah. somewhat of a formula for that. And uh, university students will often find themselves you know, uh, hiding in their room because they don't feel like they fit. Right. That in itself can lead to depression. Right. right. Uh, as we said before, older folks, the elderly. Right. There are so many people who, I remember reading a statistic or a fact that uh, X amount, hundreds of thousands of people in a given place, and I'm sorry this is so vague, had not had a conversation with someone else in like 60 days. Right. Can you right. imagine that? No, actually, I am blessed, and I can't imagine that. Right, right. Uh, but obviously, that's the truth of it. And there are many, many people who, unfortunately, lack attachments. Yes, there are. Healthy attachments, attachments that give them a sense of well-being, purpose, um, and, and it's a sad statement on our society today, really, that there is so much loneliness, and I don't think that it's limited to any one socioeconomic group, uh, nor to one age group. I think it's probably across the board. And, and, and I think you're right. Yeah. Um, so I'm really excited about Britain addressing it in the way that they are. Yeah. And I think that Canada should do the same. I mean, we have an aging society, right? And there's an awful lot of people out there who just right. are not in touch with anybody, right? For extended period of times, that, that's not good. Well, I'm sure other countries will be keeping an eye on how this evolves in Great Britain. Yeah, so they've already met with their Canadians, yes. Canadian counterparts, and I think that's a great idea. And I think really the more countries that can work on this together, brainstorming and bringing a lot of brain power into this, probably the better off everybody will be. So, let's move into the interview, uh, Huff. You and I were born into the same family. What are the odds of that? <laughs> <laughs> there were five of us, five siblings, and we were born in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. It's about an hour away from Toronto. Right. And we were born into a highly unique family, a rabbinical family. Um, my, Our father was a rabbi, and by virtue of he being a rabbi, our mother was a Rebbitzin. You know, I wrote an article once that says that, you know, uh, a man studies to become a rabbi, ultimately taking exams and getting a certification, which is called smicha. Whereas a woman's certification is her love for her man. Right. Uh, so mom loved dad, and there, and she married him, and therefore she became a Rebbitzin, and yeah. her job was equally as difficult. Yeah, right? And important. It was important. So, yes. the first question I have for you is, there is something different about being a rabbinical child. Would you agree with that? Definitely. What, 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 what is that in your mind? How? I think it's a big picture. And I think that we were raised, as you said, in a very unique home. We were exposed to so many different things as children. Yes that I think most children are not. 
Um, by virtue of the fact that our parents were Rabbi and Rabbitson, I think there's an added element here, and that's that we're from a small town. Mm -hmm. So I think that the dynamics of the rabbinate in a small town are somewhat different than the dynamics of the rabbinate in a larger city as well. Um, I think that we... um, I think that we were raised to be very sensitive, thoughtful people. Empathetic. Very empathetic. Not to say others aren't, but I, I'm just highlighting uh, what I feel we how we benefited. Um, very empathetic. Right. And um, I think that our eyes were open to so much that it really created a very broad view of the world for us at a young age. Right, right. So let's expand on that a little bit. Our our eyes were definitely open as youngsters, although we probably didn't know what we were seeing half the time. But as I say that because as an example, uh, Dad and Mom brought a a woman into our home who had been uh, with a motorcycle gang. Right. She was Jewish, and she ended up staying with us. (laughs) Right. Bizarre situation, right? For an extended period of time. Like a long time. Yes. And her boyfriend would come around on his Harley Davidson, <laughs> and he was a member of the... Wayne was his name. Yes. Remember Wayne? Wayne, that's and right. And he would give us rides on his Harley. Do you remember that? That's right. I remember. With no helmet. Right. That's right. <laughs> do you remember actually being remember. on the Harley? I sure do. So I do too. Yeah. So do I. And you can imagine what the neighbors were thinking. <laughs> exactly. You know. I know. So it was a bizarre upbringing in, in those ways. But a very eye-opening uh, upbringing in other ways in terms of the people whom we were exposed to. Like we, I often say that and mom brought the stranger in our home from the outside, right? And not only into our home, but we went out as well with um, dad. For example, um, we would go with dad to the prison. Yes, Guelph Correctional Services. And while dad was visiting the Jewish prisoners, we were there sitting on the lawns um, while the prisoners were walking back and forth or waiting in the waiting area yeah. uh, or, and thinking nothing of it because we felt very secure knowing that we had gone with Dad. Well, you, you weren't scared? I was not scared, no. So I remember sitting in the foyer of the Correctional Services and I remember distinctly how that my feet did not re- reach right, the ground. Right, And I also remember guys walking by me in their orange... Right. Uniforms, outfits, yes. and 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 being handcuffed. Yeah, that was daunting. So yes, it was daunting. I was older than you a little bit. Um, I certainly had a sense that you know I'm not um, in a movie theater. Yes, it was real. I clearly understood that this was a real situation that we were in, Very and much. that caution was advised. But not in a fearful way because I didn't, I didn't think that Dad would um, allow us to be in a situation where there was any cause for uh, concern right. or that there our, our safety would be compromised. Right. Um, as well, I would go with Dad to the hospitals to visit the patients, and that was a very, very um, wonderful experience for me. Was because, it? Yes, because I've always liked older people. I've always enjoyed their wisdom and their company, and a lot of the people we visited were older, 
Um, and that was extremely rewarding for me. I would even go with that to the morgue <laughs> to sit with the bodies. That's crazy. Um, uh, as is our tradition. Yeah. And I feel very honored to be able to do all of these things with Dad. I find that you're speaking about this so naturally that there's a certain uh, almost strangeness to that, a beauty to it. Yes. Because you were exposed to uh, some things in life that no children are exposed That's to. Right. But Because I remember, too, when I came to Toronto a few years later, I went to yeshiva, Talmudic school, private Jewish school. Uh, one of the tasks that we had as yeshiva bachrim, as, as, as the students of this in- institution, was to go up the street to Branson Hospital right. and sit there with individuals who had passed away right. until we buried oh. them. And like you said, that's part of our religion, right. that right. the body should never be alone. Right. But, I mean, if you think about it objectively, here's like a 13-year-old kid, and it could be night. It was night. It, it was night. It was night. You know? It was the middle of the night. I mean, uh, from an objective point of view, like take yourself out of you know your background yes. a little bit. It's bizarre, no? Oh, taking myself out of our background, it is bizarre. Yeah. Yes. However, this is what we grew up in. We did. And um, this was, I guess you could say, what we were nourished on, mm-hmm. right? This, this was our food, our nourishment. And I felt very... Blessed to be the daughter of the rabbi and the rabbit said. Yes, you were saying. And I felt very honored to be able to accompany dad. I, I would go to schools with him where he would speak. He was really an ambassador, um, for, for the Jewish people. Yes. Um, and I would go, I remember there was a school putting on the diary of Anne Frank and they wanted dad to come to, to view the play prior to it being put on for the public, just to make sure, uh, to confirm its accuracy. And there we were, you know, sitting there in the audience. Um, I guess it was the two of us um, for a dress rehearsal. And I, I felt very um, honored to be able to accompany Dad. Well, what, what did that stem from, feeling that sense of honor? I think that I grew up being very proud um, of being Jewish. And I think that because we grew up in a small community and attended public school, uh, that I felt at a very young age I had to define who I am and who I am not. So you were conscious of that? I was very conscious oh. of it at a very young age. What age are we speaking of? I remember definitely by junior high. Which is like, what, 13, 12? Um, I think 13, 14 being conscious of this. It could have come earlier, but that's really when I remember clearly. And um, so with this consciousness of my self-definition, um, did come a lot of pride. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I feel grateful for that. Yeah, I'm always so envious and, and curious, really, about individuals who come to a certain level of consciousness early on in their life. I remember a young man who actually... Uh, became religious, I think he was at 12 years old or 10 years old, and I had spoken to him, and he was very clear and, and very lucid about what he wanted to accomplish. Because my consciousness came uh, uh, last week, really. <laughs> <laughs> Never you know, too late. Honestly, like I took years to mature in the way you're speaking of. The defining myself as a Jew came way, way, way after I left Yeshiva. I, 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 but we all come at different times, I guess. We come at different times, and I think we keep on coming. 
I like to look at myself as a work in progress. So the way I defined myself then was um, through the eyes, through the soul and the heart of a teenager, a young person. But I have continued to define myself and to find that place within me. Um, As an adult, I've always told my children that if you define yourself um, as a Jew, based on what you learned in elementary school, you're shortchanging yourself. True, true. So we have, my feeling is I, I have to keep on defining myself. I have to keep on updating it and redefining myself. And um, to me, that's part of my journey. Mom in all of this, as I said before, Dad was the engineer of the train, or ostensibly speaking, he was. But Mom was the one who really made this whole, our lives grind and move forward. I'm amazed, from a, a, a purely from a housewife point of view, I don't, I don't know how Mom did it. She had five of us, she had people living in our home. The, she must have made thousands of meals. For sure. And there she was helping. I remember at one point we had an individual in our home who had to have an operation, and she ended up in a body cast. Do you remember that? Right, right. And Mom had to schlep her up and down the stairs on Lydia Street, yeah. which was a tiny little house with no air conditioning. Do you yeah. remember how hot it was in there? I remember. Wow, like what heroism. And I, and I don't use that. Like often, you know, in our society we call, some, you know, so many people we call heroes when they're not. Mm-hmm. But I think Mom was. I really do. I agree with you. And as an adult now, looking back and appreciating Mom's work, uh, I, I think that Mom and I think all of us siblings agree that Mom was remarkable. Remarkable, right? Totally remarkable. And she, she kept things going. She did not shy away from work. And she really saw to it that Dad could live out his dream. Do his thing, right? Yes. She was extremely selfless. Yeah. And committed and devoted. And um, she took so much upon herself that when I think about it, it, it just, it's, it really, she really is a definition of a hero. Mind, mind-boggling, you. mind-boggling. Very mind-boggling. Would you say you took a lot of your motherhood, womanhood, out of what you had learned from mom? I would say that definitely there's a huge piece of, of who I am is thanks to who mom was. Yes. And, uh, and that too is a great honor. Though I don't think that I've achieved mom's level. <laughs> Um, in many areas. Um, So definitely I would say yes. Did you see any anti-Semitism in Kitchener? Definitely. Like were you exposed to it? Definitely. Like what? At a very young age. Such as what? Uh, Name calling, boys chasing after me. Yeah. Um, Yes, there definitely was anti-Semitism. Were you scared? I was scared. Yeah, me too. So was I. Yeah, that was scary. We were young, we so were. it's very scary. It's tragic, isn't it? It's very sad. Yes, it is. It's very sad yes. that young children have to experience that, or people of any age have to experience that. Yeah, honestly, and then the people who are perpetrating it, 
But, oh my gosh, what could be wrong with those children, you know? So the interesting thing is that some of those boys came from very nice families. Yeah. And um, I think a lot has to do with um, being part of a group, mm-hmm. being accepted. Mm-hmm. In some cases, perhaps what you see and hear at home, yeah. but not in all cases. No. And I think in terms of some of these boys, it's a matter of growing up and having somebody talk to them and um, enlighten them. So you make an interesting point. Mom was very brash and very aggressive. We should say that our parents have passed away. Yes. Dad died close to 30 years ago and Mom died three years ago. Right. But she was very, very brash. She was very out there. She did not hide from what was on her mind. Right. (laughs) I have some of that. Do you have any of that? Are you brash at all? Um, I've never described myself as being brash. Right. I would say I have opinions. But do you ever feel like you're out there and you're like, you're, I'm going to say what's on my mind, they're going to hear from me, you know? Um, I suppose there are moments like that where yeah. I feel like that. Um, but um, I would say my children say that. <laughs> Definitely yeah. there are moments like that, are times like that. Um, there are other times where I would prefer to sit back and listen. Yeah. Um, sometimes, however, uh, I have found that my silence can be misinterpreted, huh. depending on the situation. It's and not always cool. Right. Right. And yeah. therefore, I have learned that when I'm very passionate about something, yes. I will sooner say what's on my mind than not because I don't want to be misinterpreted as a result of my silence. That's very well thought out. I think you're the gentler one amongst the five of us. Um, I think everybody has a gentle side. Yeah, no question about it, but some of us have a brash side too. So so mom was very brash, and I remember going through, um, I think I might have told this in the last episode, we were walking through uh, a Kmart, I think, or something, and uh, the kid at the cash, uh, mom said, this is a very expensive item. And the kid at the cash said, yes, I know, I think our store Jews people on this. Mm-hmm. And mom looks at it, but she goes, what? You know how she was, right? What? Like, it was scary. And I said, mom, you know what, forget about it. He doesn't know what he's saying. Oh, no, I'm not going to forget about this. <laughs> I said, mom, just leave it alone. <laughs> no, I will not. You remember how she was, right? I know. Anyways, long and short, she says, young man, what did you just say? He said, oh, no, this is an expensive item. No, no, what did you say after that? He goes, oh, yeah, I think our store charges too much. Uh-huh. I think we Jew people. And then mom said about educating him yes. in a way he'd never been educated. Yes. And I, and I, and I, years later, I think to myself, well, good for her. And that's sometimes <laughs> what people know. need is uh, to be educated. Right, standing because at a cashier at Kmart. acceptable. <laughs> Agreed. Yes, you're right. And um, mom enlightened him. She certainly did. She as certainly I, did. As I believe she probably enlightened many people yes. whom we'll never know about. Well, she also wrote letters. Do you remember? She wrote a letter to the queen. Yeah, she and did. And got a response. Yes. Uh, she used to write letters to the editor. Yeah. Um, it's one thing that mom taught so us, you know, Hope. A lot of times people will comment on an article that they've read, yeah. and I'll say to them, email the author of that right. article or phone right. the newspaper and congratulate them on a job well done. Right. And the response, more often than not, is, oh, I never thought of that. 
I agree. Where I we agree. were exposed to the opposite. We were exposed to the opposite. I think that we were raised to be grateful. Very much. Um, and I think that has stuck with us. Well, Mama was really incredible. To the end of her days, I remember walking across the street and buying Mama a jar of herring. She liked herring. Yeah. Right? Do you like herring? Yes. Good. Too much. I know. It's the thing about herring. I can eat the whole bottle. Yes. With so, the onion. <laughs> with civil. So, so I bring back the herring and I give it to Mom. And she literally would shower accolades my way. Honestly, for a week or two weeks afterward. Exactly. My son bought me a bottle of herring. You yeah. won't believe how good he is to me. And, and she then, would thank you many times. Over. over and over, she would yeah. hurl, you know, appreciation my way. Yeah. And it was a bit too much because it wasn't in sync with what I had done. Right. But I think because mom had come from the Depression. Yes. Or a little bit after the Depression. And that was the generation who woke up one day and found out that six million Jews were murdered. Right. Some of whom were their direct family. Exactly. That her level of appreciation was as high as her level of disappointment in humankind was low. I think that's a very good point. Yeah. And I think that is how Mom lived out her days. I don't think she ever forgot her roots. No. Never. No. And I think she was very proud of her accomplishments. And... um with her pride came gratitude. Yes, very much. Very to much. To her credit. Before we move on to the next stages of your life, I have certain images in my mind um, about our upbringing, a narrative. We all have our own narrative. Narratives are interesting because essentially, in our heads, they're the most important pieces uh, that occurred during our lifetime, happened to us or with us or because of us. They could be little instances, and we can't always make heads or tails out of them, knowing why this is part of our narrative. But one of my, one of my, let's say, chapters or pages in that narrative, in the Avram book, is, uh, is our Passover Seder. Oh, right. I remember how the table was set up so beautifully, so right. elegantly, so royally. Right. right. And I also remember Dad coming in, in his kittle. Right. Which well, is white. It's a white so spiritual sort of cloak. Regal. Regal. Yeah. And he had a real super-duper one, right? Very. A gorgeous one. Yeah. And he would sit there and he would conduct the Seder and we would all be part of this very prolific, very in-depth service. I think also feeling part of history. Right, like in what way? What would you say? I would say that as you're describing it and I'm picturing it and feeling the moments, I feel because the Seder night is um, recalling and... Um, remembering and honoring a historic event. Mm -hmm. um, and I think with every historic event, we try, we try to bring it to today, to our lives today in one way or another. Yes. And in that way, I think that we are, my feeling is, adding a link to the chain of Jewish history. The continual. When we experience these historic moments yes. today. So we're bringing the past to the present, and we are also feeling the future, uh, and hoping and praying, you know, that the future should be a good one. But very often in my life, I feel that I am part of something much bigger than myself, yes. being part of the Jewish people. Yes. And as a result, on so many occasions, I feel like I am 
um, contributing and participating in adding another link to the chain of Jewish history. Which is a really nice sense to have, Wonderful. because metaphorically, you almost feel as though you're one of those millions of people walking through the desert after exiting Egypt and being part of the ultimate uh, genesis of the Jewish people in Israel and the development That's right. of our people. That's That's right. A, you're right. And if you don't have that, your, your life can really lack meaning. Say what you want about religion, and I certainly have a lot to say about it, as you do. <laughs> Sometimes our, our opinions diverge. But it just seems to me that people who have some level of meaning on a spiritual level, their lives just seem to be richer. Well, I think there's definitely a, a, a component uh to their lives, yeah. that does add richness. Um, so whether it's through religion or spirituality, connecting to something much bigger than yourself, yes. I think that it definitely uh, enriches life because it makes us realize it's not just about me, and it's not just about this moment, and it's about something much more vast, um, which has a great deal of depth and meaning and eternity. Yes, a foreverness to it, right? Yes, right. a foreverness, because just as the past is so far away, if we go very, you know, many, many, many generations prior to ourselves, yet we're connecting with that, mm -hmm. and there's that sense of belonging. Correct whether it's going from the past to the present or the present to the future. There, to me, there is that sense of eternity. Yeah, which, which, which is beautifully expressed and well worth thinking about. And I know that you carried that through your entire life on different levels. As an example, when you came to Toronto from Kitchener, you were, what, 14 years old? 14. So you left Kitchener at 14 after our eldest sister, Etty, had left the year before. Right. Following you was Naomi, and following Naomi was Layla, and then following Layla was me. Right. So every year for about five years or six years, each one of us would leave Kitchener, right. come to Toronto, and I think by 1973, which is when I arrived, we had all left home. To attend school here in Toronto. Yeah, we had all left home. So, yes. And then the four of you girls actually had an apartment on Bather Street. I guess Ethie may have been, what, 16 at that time, 17? Well, I was 14 when we had our first apartment. 14 so years old. Ethie would have just turned 16. R right, and, and Naomi would have been 13, and then when Layla came the next year, she was 13 and all you guys right, moved up right. a year. That's right. <laughs> so, so, yeah, you're talking about, you know, requiring a spirit and a sense of meeting at that young age just to get by. I mean, there you were at 14 years old in a home, in an apartment. On, on, on the one I remember is the one on Bathurst. You had a few of them. Um, but what was that like? Well, in, your, in your mind, looking back, what was that like? Well, the first apartment was actually a basement apartment. On Cyril Street. On Cyril Street. And I, an older couple lived above us. Yes. Um, but they were not home all the time because if the weather was bad, they stayed at their store. They must have had an apartment above oh. their store, so sometimes we were in the house by ourselves. Oh. Um, it was really interesting. Um, Mom would cook our meals yeah. um, and do our laundry because we went home every weekend. So when we went home on Friday, Dad picked us up. Mm -hmm. um, Dad drove us back on Sunday or Monday. Right. 
with our clean clothes and our fresh food for the week. Mm-hmm. Um, bless mom and dad. And um, I believe it was Tuesday night, we went to our Bobby and Zadie, our grandparents, for dinner. That was on mom's side. That was on mom's side, mom's yeah. parents. Moshe Chaim and Hilda. That's right. Hinda. Or Hinda. Hinda. Yeah, same thing. And, um, and then um, our Zadie would buy food for Wednesday night dinner. Uh. So mom essentially was cooking for Monday night and Thursday night. Right. And, um, and it was the, the three of us and the four of us. And it really was, that was our normal, <laughs> but it wasn't normal. Right. Uh, but it certainly taught us responsibility, independence. It must have. Which was very good for me because I was such a homebody. Yeah, yeah, you like to stay home. I like to stay home. I, I was very homesick when I wasn't home, and so the the change for me coming to Toronto was not easy. It was difficult because I missed mom and dad so much. And um, But certainly it, it taught us a lot of life skills. That we learned at a very early age. Hey, do you remember the smells from early on? Can you tell me some of them? Um, like I remember at Auntie Svetel's house, it smelled like mothballs. That was <laughs> that was Zadie, our grandfather's sister. You remember that? Right. You would go oh, there, there were so many on Winnet, and you go in there and it smelled like mothballs. Yes, so many homes then smelled of mothballs. It was and very also, generational. That smell. Very, and also I can still feel the plastic on the couches. <laughs> yeah, or the noise that it made. <laughs> or the noise it made, especially in the hot weather, sitting I know. on it. Yeah, yeah, your bum uh, would stick to it. Right. Right. Exactly. Uh, what I other smells? The, the, well, not necessarily a smell, but like the telephones on the wall. Okay. With the short little cord. Yeah. Um, the homes, to me, as I remember, smelled very Hamish. They smelled very warm. And there was a sense of, I'm going to my grandparents, because usually our grandmothers cook something or bake something for us. So yeah. we were coming into these homes that had such delightful, uh, you know, scents um, and fragrances stemming from the home-cooked food. Um, so Bobby, Dad's mom, she would make fricassee, oh, and this was delicious, that. and she would make chopped egg sandwiches. Um, what, what's fricassee? What is that? It's uh, chicken and meatballs, like chicken, I like say the pipics, the necks, the wings, <laughs> the pipics. either in a tomato sauce or in a non-tomato sauce. Which is delicious. It's a stew of sorts, I yeah. guess you could say. A chicken stew. Yeah. Um, but with tremendous flavor. It gets better over time, actually. Yeah. So there were all of these beautiful, beautiful smells that we would walk in, would greet us as we walked into their homes. And, uh, you know, it's not like today. Like, I don't remember televisions in the early days at Bloody and Zadie's house. Maybe no. there was. I don't recall. No, I think there was, but they got like one or two channels. One or two channels, if they had. So it's not as though we sat there with games or toys. You know, we sat there, we had to make our fun. Yes. And make, you know, talk to each other and, um, um, you know, enjoy being with our grandparents. Did you enjoy being with them? Again, as I said earlier, I enjoy older people. So, um, being with our grandparents and with our great aunts, um, Auntie Sveto, um, there was something very enjoyable for me. What, what was that? Because I remember Zadie was very uh, warm and loving warm. and fun and funny. Very. Whereas Booby, I always found her to be extraordinarily quiet and demure. 
Well, she had hearing issues. Oh, is that? She yes. couldn't. Oh, she, someone should have told me that. Yeah, she did have hearing. I'm not sure how far back that went, but she did have hearing issues. What? But she was. What? what? <laughs> I do that all the time. But um, she was quiet. She was. I also enjoyed seeing how respectful mom and dad were toward them. Towards them. You saw, I have to tell you something, okay? I know that respect <laughs> is an enormous thing in our family, and as it is in many, many families, and I think should be. Yes. One of the things I've been teaching Noah, my son, lately, is to let me go through the door first. Right. And to let other people, particularly right. if they're seniors. I don't know any more about letting women through the door first. I don't think that's um, necessary anymore. Right. Um, but am I wrong or right on it? I'm not sure if you're right or wrong, but I understand where you're coming from. Would you, would you tell your children, let women go out of the elevator before you? Um, say that I woman would say, let, you know, let people go out. Let people, let people go out. Um, if it's a woman, let the woman go out before you. But, Chav, you know what? Growing up in those years, be it in Kitchener, when, when the Mr. Bullises of the world, mm -hmm. the Mr. Sidersons of the world, and they all seemed like they were 250 yes, to us. But they were right. old. Yes, they were they old. Were. And they to were. To us, for sure. And they were hobbling along, and they were warriors, these people. And then we come to Toronto with our grandparents also who were ostensibly older, but really they were in their late 60s right, and early right. 70s. Right, They just seem so old. We're not that far from that now. No, we're not. But we were taught, we were required to give them enormous amounts of respect. Yes. Right? Yes. And it, I'm glad that that's how we were raised. You are glad. I'm very Be glad. Because? I think that showing respect uh, is an important part of a person. Mm -hmm. I think that it creates an awareness um, about others and it takes you, it, it, it really, um, I would say, um, it, it, it gives you a different life view mm -hmm. by realizing and recognizing that there are there are differences, yes. right? There are differences. Older people are different mm -hmm. um, than younger people. Yes, they are. And by virtue of the fact that they have lived um, as long as they have, um, I'm talking about good, decent people, of course, they have acquired a certain wisdom that comes with age. And I think that there's something to be said about showing respect. And they almost deserve right. something that younger people don't, right. which again, right. which is that right. um, respect. It's it's that honor. Yes, it's an honor. Yeah, they're still standing. I mean, after all they've gone yeah. through. Yes, that's right. right. That's right. I was telling I was telling someone yesterday at Whole Foods we were getting a stir fry for my son, and the fellow who was making it was a Filipino man. He just had two twins, and uh, we were talking about respect as well. And he told me that within their culture. Um, if anybody is older than you, there's That's a particular right. name or word that you have to apply to them. That's right. A um, title. A title, right? Mm -hmm. I think you have that in Yiddish as well. Yes. And I said, that's good. The, the only challenge to that, and I know because I was the youngest of five, it's always <laughs> the youngest right. who has to give the most respect, and, and very often right. who's, who's, who's disrespected, who respected that's the least. Right. So I think that brings us to another point. Yeah. That everybody deserves respect. Honestly. Everybody deserves respect. Even little people. Little people, bigger people, people in between. However, I think honor is reserved 
for honor. certain people. Honor. There we, we go. We show honor to older people. There we go. Yes. And it's it's a it's not that easy to define. No. The difference, but truly there is a difference. I think there's an important distinction, and I think they are equally important. Just as respect is important, honor is important. And by the way, when I say little people, I mean children. Children, definitely, yeah, yes. definitely. So. So you're here in Toronto, you're 14, you're 15, you're 16, you're going through the, the, the Jewish, private Jewish school system. Um, this is really new to you in the beginning, certainly, because you had been in public school. Uh, was there a certain, to be a bit dramatic about this, was there a certain trauma that you went through in terms of the evolution or the change between Kitchener, your entire school was not Jewish except for you or maybe a couple kids. I know I was the only Jew in the school. Right. In I was at one time. And then you come here to Toronto and your entire community is Jewish. In fact, we were not exposed to non-Jews at that point. So I wouldn't label that as a trauma uh, I, uh, because there was, there was so much positive about it. I would definitely label it as a huge adjustment, mm -hmm. a huge change. It required adapting to new surroundings. Um, that was a challenge. Um, and uh, it did take time. It did take time. I was fortunate in that I had a very good friend, Brenda, mm. who I had met at camp prior to moving to Toronto. So that when I moved to Toronto and came to a new school, I did know Brenda. Mm -hmm. And that was very, very helpful. And we're still very, very close friends. You are today. good friends, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was a big help. But certainly it was a very, very major adjustment. But you did well in school. I did do well in school. When I came to Toronto, it was a struggle because I didn't understand Hebrew, so I was put back. I was in grade 9 in English and grade 6 in Hebrew. That's kind of humiliating. That right? was. That yeah. was very, very difficult. Yeah. At the same time, I had wonderful teachers. My grade 6 Hebrew teacher was Mrs. Bergman, who passed away. Rest in peace. And then I graduated at Hanukkah time, grade 7, and my teacher then was Miss Berkowitz, right. who was also fabulous. And um, Dad and Mom arranged a tutor for me, Sarah. And we are still friends till today. I know, Sarah. Very she, close friends. She taught me history. She's lovely. Yeah, she's lovely. So um, there, there, there was, there were a lot of blessings in the hardship. Um, but you got nineties, didn't you? I remember you doing really, really well in school. I don't remember what I got in grade nine here in Toronto because it was such a year of adjustment. Right. I may have got nineties. I may have not. I don't really remember. Um, I was just really. Uh, very much focused on adjusting to so many new things. Just being away from home was a huge adjustment yes. for me. Yes. Um, I was lucky in that I had Etsy here because when Etsy came, our, our eldest sister, she came on her own. Yeah. So I was lucky that I had her. And she's a warrior, isn't and she? And she's a warrior. She yeah. Our, our, our relationship was interesting. We should touch on that. It was a contentious one because I, I'm not, I wasn't very responsible, certainly not. And I would come over to the apartment on weekends when you didn't go to Kitchener later on, and I would basically leave a mess. And, and that was not in sync with who you were at all. That's right. I, I know you felt very strongly that you were the one who had to keep the place clean. 
I think I did. You did, right? <laughs> Which is a drag, because there's like five kids, yeah. and you're the one who's consistently trying to maintain a controlled environment. And I know myself, and it really, honestly, it's till I had my son. Domestically, I was uh, hindered. <laughs> I remember once I left, I left a coffee cup on the dining room table, and I was miles away by that point. You called me, you said, you come back now. So I said, Chav, I'm not, I'm not. You no, know, now, put that coffee cup away. Do you remember that? <laughs> I forgive you. I such examples. I forgive you. I forgive you. Yeah, thanks. Um. <laughs> so Chav, you graduate school, you did pretty well. The expectation within the ultra-Orthodox community of which you were part of, although philosophically you were a little bit short, I wouldn't say short, but you weren't exactly in sync with that level of Orthodoxy, right? You're well, more modern really Orthodox. Know. I don't really know what ultra-Orthodox means. Okay. I, don't, I don't label myself. I am a Torah Jew, okay. a proud Torah Jew, and um, I, I really don't. I, you know, I think if you ask 10 people to define ultra-Orthodox, you're going to get 10 different definitions based on who you're asking. So I don't give much credibility for that. Fair enough. Um, I, I kind of put you as a modern Orthodox, but that's my own label. I don't label myself. Okay, I'm so we'll say that. I'm not modern Orthodox. I'm not ultra-Orthodox. I'm a Torah Jew. Um, I'm proud to be one. All right, fine. Good. I like that. So um, you're right. So high school's over, you went to university for a little while, right? but really the expectations were that you would get married. That's what you wanted. Well, that was the expectation in our home of us girls. Mm -hmm. And um, in the meantime, there were a few career paths that I was interested in. I hadn't decided I was either interested in becoming a teacher. I had always wanted to teach the blind. Oh, did you? Yes, I had a girlfriend growing up in Kitchener. Her name uh, was Molly, and her father was legally blind. Oh. And I believe he worked at the CNIB. Okay. And I always felt a connection because they welcomed me so nicely to their home, and they were lovely people. Um, so either a teacher uh, or a special ed teacher of some type or a lawyer. Oh. Um, and then in my second year of university, I met David, um, my husband-to-be. And um, and once we were married, I went out to work a part time, and then we started a family right away. Yeah, right. So was it clear to you that once you got married, university was done? There was never a no question of you staying in it. Um, you know, it's a good question. Um, looking back now, I wish I would have stayed in it. Right. But at the time. Um, I, I think it was more important that I go out to work to bring in, you know, a few dollars. Um, and also, I was pregnant, so I was sick, um, like nauseous, sick, the morning sickness. Um, I can't really remember the conversation about it. Mm -hmm. But as I said, looking back, I would have um, liked to have finished my degree. So there's a concept uh, that exists in the Jewish community. No doubt outside of it as well, but in our community it's called Shiduchim or mm -hmm. Shidduchs, which is matchmaking. And at a particular age, generally in the community that we came from or come from, uh, those calls would come early on from matchmakers or other family friends. And they would say, look, I have this beautiful, in your case, I have this beautiful uh, guy, this beautiful man for your daughter, hubby. Um, would the call come to you or would it come to our parents? 
Well, because mom and dad were out of town, yeah. very often it would come to me, or perhaps even Etsy. I'm not, I'm not sure. But nowadays, does it come to the parents or the? Um, it can go to the parents, or if the single person is older, can go directly to them. Of your six kids, did you get calls? The initial call often. We have someone My for your son children, or daughter. My children basically took a different route. Yeah. So, true. True. Um, uh, the ones who were matched up, it was through family. Okay, okay. So it was uh, it was not so much the matchmaker setup that you're referring to. Right, and sometimes they would find their own uh, and they eventual found their spouse. Own. That's right. Some okay, found so, their so, own. so so you get this call from uh, Mrs. Jadowski, who has since right. passed on, a lovely right. woman. Very she lovely. should rest in peace. Amen. We were just at her daughter's house on Shabbat. Yes. And... Uh, and she says, I have this wonderful young man for you, David Rosenzweig. Right. And you said no. And I said no because what I heard about him um, didn't, he didn't seem to really be um, suitable for me. Okay. Um, his education was a bit different than mine. Um, his, uh, you know, how, the way he socialized was different than the way I socialized, meaning that he would socialize in mixed crowd. I wasn't socializing in mixed crowds so much. Yes. Um, Boys and girls. And yes, that's yes. right. So I felt that we were, the word we use is hashkafa, you know, basically, um, philosophically, I felt that we were perhaps not suited for each other. Um, but Mrs. Janowski thought otherwise, mm-hmm. and even though I told her, no, I'm not interested, she went ahead and told David I'd be very happy to go out with him. Oh, did she? She did. You're kidding. Yes. And I didn't know that. Next thing I knew, David called me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. I need to go out on a date with him. Fabulous. So, um... I liked his voice too much to say no to him. You were saying. Yes, I was smitten with his voice. He had a very calm, soothing, soothing, um, gentlemanly voice. And uh, so we went out. We went out on the next Saturday night. It was the last Saturday night in February. What year are we speaking here? That was 1977. (laughs) By the way, just to pick up on his voice thing, you told me, that later on, after you had been married, David was extraordinary. He was a wonderful son. Wonderful. And he was in touch with his mother every single day. I think he saw her most days. And his father. When and he his was father, alive. too. Yeah. And so what? At night, when he would call his mom on the phone, tell us that yeah, story. Yeah, so when David would come home late from work, yeah. um, very often he stopped in at his mother at his parents' house. If the light was on, he would stop in. Yes. Um, but if he did not stop in, then he would call his mother when he got home mm-hmm. to say goodnight to her. And so um, he had come home. I was already in bed. And uh, uh, he came up to say goodnight to me. And I said, you're calling your mother. Call her, please, here from our room. There was a rocking chair next to my bed. I said, so I asked David, please sit down and call your mom. This way I can fall asleep listening to your voice. And indeed, that's what happened. And indeed, that's what happened. Yeah, so he kind of rocked you to bed with his... He lo- with, it was with a his, lullaby. With a lullaby of yeah, his voice. Yeah, of his voice. So, Chav, what was David like? David was uh, a most remarkable and unique human being. 
unlike anybody I've ever met in my entire life. And um, he was extremely humble, which my children <laughs> have inherited from him. Yes. Um, he was humble yet proud. He was gentle yet with strength of character. Very unique combination. He was extremely generous, extremely selfless. He was extremely wise. Yeah. And he thought things through. He was a thoughtful, thinking person. He was very, um, he was calm. He was a very calm person. And um, he gave people the sense that he was never busy. So that if you ask something of him, I know. It, his response was, of course, sure. Can I, can I tell you something about that? Yeah. Sort of break in here. Uh, I picked that up from David yes. because I know that that's how David was. And you, I hear this from his kids, all your kids all the time. Yes. And I have to tell you something. I'm of the ilk where someone calls me because I'm an anxious person. Yes. And because, let's say, I'm busy. I'll go, I'm sorry. Okay, what do you need? I'll call yes. you back. This and that. But I, I tried to stop doing that. And yes. I tried to stop because of David. Really? Well, I'm nice. thinking, look, David had six kids. Yes. He had you as a wife. Yes. He had his accounting, and he was extraordinarily successful at it. He was all over right. the world. And his parents, who he was his parents devoted to. His two brothers. And family. And then you call him, and, hey, how you doing? Yeah. And I find that people who are type A, would you qualify him as type A? I'm not sure what that means. Like, really, always doing stuff, always busy, wanting yes. to grow. Yes, that's Ty- right. Type B is someone who's a bit more chilled. I'm kind of like between C and B. Well, the funny thing is that, as I'm saying, David was an interesting combination. That he was chilled. He was chilled. And yet, he was always busy and wanting to help people. Yes. If he would come home from work and there was, you know, a certain way or ways in which he could help me, he wasn't the type who had to sit down and put his feet up and, you know, read his newspaper um, and recharge his batteries. He would just step right in. And see where the needs existed and take over with, with happiness and joy yes. and, um, no resentment, no, um, huffing, puffing, you know, complaining. Truly just happy to help whoever he could help. Did, did you guys fight at all? I would not, I would say we did not fight. I would say we had disagreements. But we also um, felt that it was very important to set a certain atmosphere in the home. And um, so disagreements are part of life. Mm -hmm. That's healthy. Mm -hmm. That's healthy because we're different human beings. But fighting is a a sign of disrespect. And I would say that David and I really, really really showed tremendous respect for one another. And and he taught you how to relax. He, he taught you taught how to me, calm down. Yes, he did teach me how to calm down because I'm not the calmest of people. Right. Um, being around him was a very calming experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, he was a lot of fun. He had a great sense of humor. Yes, he did. And... Um, so he was fun to be with. He was also a very interesting person. 
um, as I mentioned to you before, when it came to discussing an important matter, I would dissect the issue from beginning to end. Ad nauseum sometimes. Sometimes. Yes. But David didn't have that need because he had tremendous clarity. And um, my children have inherited that, thankfully. Yes, they have. Um, and his clarity always, um, it was something that I, I was, I found remarkable. Mm -hmm. To see a situation, to see the different aspects of a situation, and to be able to determine what might be the best outcome here, um, or how to best move forward, you know, depending upon what the circumstances were. So what, what did you bring to David? Uh, that's a nice question. Um, well, my brother-in-law Art is always very, very kind about um, saying that, um, you know, I did bring so much to David life, life, David's life, and I really appreciate whenever he says that. I would say we were really, and we are, two, as I always said to David, we're two puzzle pieces that come together yeah. and match perfectly. I, I would say we were a good balance, and um, I would say that I brought um, a, a depth to our relationship, um, as did David. Uh, I'm not saying I was unique in that. I would say, you know, to a degree of spiritual depth, mm -hmm. as David did as well. Um, I think we appreciated similar things. Um, and then we had we we had our own interests as well. Yes. Um, but I think that we really balanced each other very well, and I think that we appreciated each other so much all our years, which to me is so unique. It I is. always felt very very blessed to have married David. And I know that he felt the same way. He always said that I was his only friend. I was his best friend. Um, we, he was very, very generous with his compliments. And uh, so I, I would say really I was very blessed to marry my soulmate. Which, I don't know. Can a lot of people say that? I don't know that so many people can say that, really. And I'm saying that, too, after 25 years of marriage and 16 years of being without David. So, to me, that's quite a gift. I wish that gift on people. I really do. Because, to me, there's no greater gift than that. That's one of life's greatest gifts. Oh, my God. You had six children together. Yes. The ultimate gift. The yes. ultimate shared gift. Six yes. children. Yes. That's a lot of kids. Well, we both wanted six children. That number? We both did. Yes. David comes from three, you come from five. Five, that's right. How'd you get to six? We wanted a large family, and I don't even know how we came to six. I don't know. It just felt right. Like, certain things you can't even explain. It's like half a dirty dozen. I guess so. <laughs> half a dozen. Yeah. Um, but we both, we both agreed on six. Six kids. And, um, and I'm glad that we did. <laughs> it must have been great having all the kids around and you and David. I mean, what joy that must have been. So it was, a, it, there was a lot of joy, a lot of noise. A lot of noise. <laughs> a lot of noise. Because it's and, five boys and a girl. Right. Right. That's right. And, and raising a large family, it's not easy. 
Um, you know, there are lots of ups and downs, and each child is their own person. Yes. And we tried to give each child what they needed. Um, as parents, you know, often we succeed, often we fail. Correct. Um, but we were really there to support each other as parents. And um, I think that that's a very big gift that we gave to our children. What, was it a struggle for you to figure out the masculinity of your home? <laughs> Huge. Oh, you have five boys <laughs> and then you have Shira. That's and uh, that's a lot of male testosterone yes. floating around. Like, boys fight. Yeah. Physical fight. Yeah. <laughs> right? They go yes. at each other, right? Much different than girls, right? Right. And, and coming from a family of four girls, and yeah. you're the youngest, and yeah. you didn't have a brother to, you know, do all that stuff with. Right. It was a huge adjustment. It must and, have been. Um, I think I'm still adjusting. <laughs> you are. <laughs> and I used to call David and tell him what was going on in our home, and he would say, that's normal. What, was it crazy? Crazy. Like, yeah. the boys would go at each other. What did you do when they fought? Like, that physically I found fought? very hard. You I, did find I it I found fun. that very hard when the boys would fight and hurt each other. Um, I'm not sure that I ever really found a, a good remedy for that. They They had to... I'm not saying there isn't a good remedy, just that I, I didn't really find one. As they got older, like once they hit puberty, they definitely settled down. Oh, well, that's good to hear. That was very good, <laughs> yes. And um, Shira, our daughter, she was a delight and an, an angel. She's beautiful. So um, that was a she was a very calming force in our home. Yes, she's a beautiful girl. Yes, she's a beautiful person. Also, she has that. Uh, is it, what would you say? A little bit of David, a little bit of you, right? Well, I would say she's a female version of David. You would. She has a lot of David's beautiful strength. Yeah. Clearly. Yeah, I love Shira. Yeah. As do each of our children. So, Chav, so uh, there's a Shabbos that you go through, David's uh, Hebrew birthday, and uh, we're now looking at 2002. Right. And Shabbos is over, and your son goes out, he gets a flat tire, and he calls your dad to come and help. And of course, being the good dad that he was, he went and he helped. You had made a coffee, or well, you were about to make a coffee for David, right? As you would after Shabbat's over, after the Saturday is over, or or Shabbat, we used to have another meal. <laughs> so you made a coffee. Well, you didn't put the hot water in it. That's right. And David goes to help. Let's make a long story short here, okay? He was murdered that night. Right. Right. Some fellow, who again, let's say, was a very strange, uh, violent human being. Um, killed David for no reason. David was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he stabbed him and he went down and that was the end of his life. Right. I'm going to guess the most traumatic evening of your life, the biggest change that you had ever gone through, and uh, and something you are still working through, as is the rest of your family and many other people, right? right. Definitely. Right, right. <laughs> Do you think back to that night very often? Um... Uh... There are times when I think back to it when it comes to David's yard site, the anniversary of his death. I definitely go back. Um, and uh, sometimes I'll do it on my own. Sometimes I'll do it with the kids or some of the kids. Sometimes we'll just be sitting around and we'll happen to go back to that night. That evening, yeah. Because we each experienced it in such a different way. Um... 
but it's not a place I go to often. Um, in the early years, I would go to the place where David was murdered yeah. on the anniversary of his death and just be there. The geographic area, yes. the grounds. Yeah, the grounds. Um, I haven't done that in many, many years because I'm passing by there all the time now. Well, you live right there. I live right there. Do you think that we was all by? Live do you right think there. that was anything in there subconsciously that you live in that exact area? I sometimes I, I wonder about that. I think it's subconscious. I think it's more. <laughs> there's more, you know, serendipity here. Is there? Is there a comfort? More of a plan here. Is there a comfort being close to that area? Well, um, to me. Um, I find, like somebody said to me, how do you pass by that area all the time? And that was a brave question of her. And I said to her, to tell you the truth, I feel very blessed because I could see that spot and that area as a dark place of violence, which yeah. it is. Yeah. But somehow God has put it into me that I see it as a very holy place because oh. David's journey into the world of eternity uh, began there. And so I see it as a place of holiness. Oh, how interesting that is. So I am very lucky that that is genuinely how I see that place. Oh, okay. So walking by there, I am walking in a holy place. And you still feel that way? Definitely. To me, it will always be a holy place. Do your kids feel that way? Do you know? Um, nobody has said that they do. Um, and it's really a very, very personal thing. Mm -hmm. um, I consider myself lucky that that's how I feel when I am in that neighborhood. You know, I, I've watched you over the years uh, fix yourself. And I have to say, you've really done an incredible job. And here's a good example of it. You've worked so hard, both for you and your children, to go through a lot of therapy, to go through a lot of various different uh, modalities of uh, strengthening oneself. And I, I just want to tell you, as your brother, I, people go through what you've gone through, and my guess is they're probably broken their entire lives. I, I don't think you are broken. I think that you've uh, fixed yourself a lot. And I know that the murder of your husband, your soulmate, will never leave you. But the fact of the matter is you've rebuilt, and not only for you, but your children. Your children are beautiful kids, and they're healthy kids, thank God. Um, and I think it's very important for you to hear that. Thank you. And for you to know that. Thank you. But that, in that light, my question to you is, so many people in our world suffer uh, a family member, a loved one. They suffer from that, that, that person being murdered. There's a lot of murder in our world. We live in a very violent world in many ways. Yes. Here's an example in our yes. very own family. What does that do to a person? Well, I can't speak for everybody. I can only speak for myself. What does it do to you? Yes. Um, but before I address this, if you don't mind, I'll just say in terms of getting to where we are, we're very fortunate um, to have such a beautiful family. Mm -hmm and community and support system yes. um, on many, many different levels. Um, and I, I think that we are very blessed in that. I, mean, I don't know how people survive without. Yeah, we're not a village. We're not, we are a village. We we're are not, a village. We're not an island. 
No, we are a village, and I think to to survive this, you really do need a village. It's interesting. I remember a bunch of stories, situations that occurred after David was murdered, and you were setting about raising your six children. And I remember one evening you phoned our sister, Layla, and you said, listen, I can't stay in this house. Yeah. i got to leave. Yeah. And Layla came over with right. her husband, Mayor, right. and she took over. Right. Right. That's a village. That's a village. Yeah. And I had so much of that. Yeah. Um, that really without that, I would not be where I am today. Yeah. yeah. Um, but getting back to your question, uh, what's your question? How do we survive? You know, Chav, I look at people who have gone through such violence in their right. family and you know, I'm privy to it because mm-hmm. you're my sister and I saw it firsthand. But I'm interested in how you define what happens to a person. What happens to a family when a family member, someone whom they love with all of their heart, is murdered? What happens? So, everything stops and falls apart. And um, life as you know it has come to a crash landing. In that exact moment. In that moment. Never, ever, ever to be the same again. Yeah. And my 12-year-old son at the time, he was at camp, and we brought him home from camp to this news. And it was just before his bar mitzvah. And he said, in his wisdom, my son Shruggy, a lot of families fall apart when this happens. We have to be careful that we don't fall apart. That's coming from a 12-year-old. Unbelievable. Very unbelievable. You know, the picture is so big that it's really even hard to zoom in on one aspect. Um, It's, you know, there's the element of shock. There's the element of grief. There's the element of trauma. There's the element of violence. There's the element of losing your life, losing your world, losing a a father, a son, a husband, a brother. Um, The picture is so huge that to break it down is really very, very hard. Suffice it to say that really, in a moment, what was isn't any longer and to go on from that is so excruciatingly painful and frightening and it's really baby steps it's really baby steps i would say for myself for five years for a good five years i was surviving i was not living and that was really thanks to my children because um, our youngest was eight, our oldest was 24 at the time. Mm-hmm. But I had an eight-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 16-year-old. Uh, Shira, our daughter, was married with a new baby. She was, I guess, 19 or 20 at the time, and then Shalom was 22, Leah was 24. Um, and um, it's as though the clock stopped. Mm-hmm. And when it starts again, it's slow motion. Mm-hmm. Everything is very slow. Um, you know, just getting out of bed in the morning, that's an accomplishment. Um, I didn't cook a meal for a month. 
Oh, really? I could not, even with a spoon or a fork. I couldn't eat the food that David and I would eat together. Um, it was the summer, so the kids were, the younger kids were very much looked after by family. Um, they went to their cottage. Um, and when they were home, there was always family around. Mm-hmm. Always. Even the first day of school in September, um, my cousin Honey went with me. She and her daughter, Sarah, went with me to buy the school bags, and she accompanied me to drop them off at school. Yes. So, life ends. Life ends, and you have to... You you aren't rebuilding, because when you say rebuild, it's as though there's a semblance of the old. It's like you're taking, you know, what was and putting it all back together. Right. To me, it wasn't rebuilding. That it was building. It was building. We had to start from the ground up. And, of course, there were strong foundational elements that we, you know, carry forward with us, um, such as David's love and, and who David was and David's strength and his kindness and just everything about David we carry forward with us. But our home was different. The atmosphere was different. David was a very sunshine person. He brought light I called into him that. in everything. Happy in the morning, happy in the evening, happy in the afternoon. Um, and we were missing that. And um, it was really a very, very slow journey of building. And a lot of therapy. Yeah. A lot of family support. We have wonderful legal support, um, you know, social workers, psychologists, play and art therapists. Right. Um, and spiritually, I had to make it my business to connect with very spiritual people, mostly, interestingly enough, women. I found that uh, religious and spiritual women were a great help to me. Were they? Yeah. How so? The men were, like the rabbis were in a legal aspect, and you know, in different ways, but the women, just in terms of their wisdom, their capacity to um, integrate what they learn into their lives, and to be able to transmit that to me, and to, as a result, give me strength. And it was, a woman-to-woman thing, like it was really connecting on a very deep emotional, spiritual level um, to to help me dig my way out of that, out of that. It was like, you know, very much, I felt like I was in the grave with David. Yes, yes. My life had ended. My life with David had ended. The part of me that was for David was no more. And um, so in many ways, I felt like a living dead person. So how were people in general? And I don't mean the village. I mean people. Like, did did you sense that people were coming up at you and looking at you in its entirety as a widow? Oh, here's like poor Javi. Uh, did, did, was, it, was it difficult to relate to those whom you were not close with? Well, I felt it was different than that. I felt it was more, this is all of our tragedy. And I felt that from Jewish people and not Jewish people. Did you? Very much. And even from the detectives and the police, 
um, that's, that's, and the lawyers, you know, the town attorney that we were involved with. It was, and somebody, and one of my therapists said that to me. He said, this is a communal tragedy. Yes. So, obviously, nobody knows what to say or do in those instances. Oftentimes, I would be comforting the people. Right, so this is what I'm trying to get at. they come over yeah. to me crying. But would you comfort them? And I would hug them and try to comfort them. And, and you were okay with that? It's not a matter of okay. It's a matter of we take on new roles. Okay. We, we take on new responsibilities. And we don't ask for them, but they're given to us. And we have to, I mean, in my mind, I, I, I felt I had to... I had to step up to the plate, so to speak. I, if I could comfort somebody who was, you know, grieving our loss and felt that it was their loss, how touching that is. Did, did you so. surprise yourself at your strength? I would say so. Like, did you figure in your mind, like, I'm not going to get through That's this? That's right. That's right. Definitely. Like, how can I live without David? David was our rock. And, like, for all of us. And for... People, you know, members of the extended family as yeah. well. Like, yeah. we can't survive without David. This is not possible. Um, but God gives strength. And um, I remember when Dad died, he came to me in a dream and he said, put one foot in front of the other really? and go forward very slowly. Really? Yeah. And uh, my brother-in-law, Art, said, keep it simple. Keep your life as simple as you can. Mm-hmm. And um, I really did reach out. I think that's one one tool in terms of surviving. Reaching out. Nobody can live through this on their own. And I did reach out. And and I didn't have to wait. Also, very often, I didn't have to be the one to initiate. People would come to me. Family would come to me. Friends would come to me. Yes. You know to to take the initiative, to do this, to do that. But then there were times where I too reached out. And that was hard because David and I always enjoyed giving and helping people. And, you know, being on the giving end, to be on the receiving end, it was hard. It is hard. I know that. It is hard. Yeah, I've had that after my heart attacks. Yes. It's very hard. So you have to develop a formula so that you can get through that part as well. Right, and, and, and keep your sense of, 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 self of self and respect for yourself. Respect and dignity. And again, it creates a tremendous amount of gratitude. I, I can't tell you how remarkable people are. You know, we were just mentioning how violent the world is. It can and, be. And yes, and we are victims of violence. And at the same time, we are recipients of tremendous kindness. Right. Right. So this is the Tremendous thing. Tremendous kindness. So this is oh. the thing. And by the way, this is why I'm doing this podcast, because I want there to be a message, a real strong message of positivity, of love, of caring, of goodness. Because my, my feeling is that this world would not exist if that were not the case. That's right. There needs to be more love. There needs to be more caring and goodness than there is evil and bad for our world to continue. And right. your story is really reflective of that because, you know, when I say that this world is still full of violence, your comeback is, yes, but there's a hell of a lot more good. (laughs) There's so much good around that really it's deep, deep within me. My gratitude is deep, deep within me. 
And I also learned that there's something very beautiful about people who are giving and thank you for the opportunity of being able to give. Yeah. And I experienced that quite a bit. And in particular, um, our lawyers, um, who are remarkable, remarkable people, um, who have thanked us for the opportunity of being able to give to us. And, and I remember when that happened the first time, I was so caught off guard. Yeah. I was so deeply touched that to me, it says so much about them, about who they are, about what kind of angels they are, and what kind of remarkable, remarkable people of integrity they are. We should say their names. It's public information, right? I don't know if it is or if it isn't, but they know who they are. They know who they are. Yeah, I'm amazed. Um, I, I, feel, I have this belief that there is goodness, there's kindness, and then there's uber-kindness. And those are people who don't just respond to something happening in their environment. Right. A little old lady needs to be walked across the street. Okay, I'll walk across the street. That's, That's right. nice. That's right. And it's good. Right. And it's important to the fabric of our society. But then there are those people, like the story of Abraham and Sarah in the Bible, who go out and look for it. That's right. You know, That's and who right. consciously and aggressively um, they scout out right. how they can do goodness in the world, and they really take initiative. And those are people that we really need to emulate. They're very impressive very people. Yeah. And they do exist today. They're not just, you know, Abraham and Sarah from the Bible. No. They really, there are people who possess their spiritual genes, um, whether they're religious or they're not. Right. Um, but definitely there are people with their spiritual genes. And I have, um, I, I have been blessed that I have, so many of those people have crossed my path. And um, as I told my children, the deeper the darkness, the more challenging the time you're going through, the more you have to open your eyes to your blessings. Because otherwise there's no balance in life. Right. And um, I really try very much to live with gratitude. Um, for big things and for little things. For everyday things and for out of the ordinary things. Because that's an important part of my existence and my moving forward um, and my living, my life. Do you hear from David at all? Very much. Like what? Like how? He's very present in my life. I feel so? him. Um, unless you've been there, this will not resonate, but I, I get signs from him. Um, I... Uh, I also continue to live my life honoring him. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel that how we live our lives, it's a tribute. It's, it's, I want to honor David. I want it to be a tribute to David. Um, and so he's very present in our grandchildren's lives who never knew him also. We, we, we keep him, keep his, his legacy, his life alive. And that's very important to me because he brought so much to our world and to this world. And, you know, his clients would say the same, his partners would say the same, his friends would say the same. And 
So I am very, very blessed that I do feel David very, very much in my life. Your your son just got married. Yeah. Did you feel, uh, were you, are you able to feel tr true joy at, at the wedding in this case? So there is true joy and there's complete joy. So definitely I feel true joy. Um, complete joy. What is true joy? What is that? True joy is feeling joyful, feeling grateful. And my psychologist um, had told me before the wedding of, um, of our son, Mayer. He was the first wedding we made after David passed away. And I said to her, how can you feel joy and sadness and longing mm -hmm, at the mm -hmm. same time? Yeah, good question. And she's a very wise woman. And she said, so much of life is about dualities. Even look at ourselves. We have two eyes, two arms, two hands, two feet, right? Um, she's, she put out her hands and she said, you know, she pointed to one hand. You can feel joy and on the other hand, and you can feel sadness. Yes. You're not mutually exclusive. You can feel both emotions at once. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And she opened up a world to me. Because sometimes we think it's one or the other, right. and therefore we can feel guilty about feeling joy, because how can we when we're missing our loved ones? Yes. Um, but yes, we can feel joy, and we can feel sadness. And that's what I carried through the wedding with me, and that's what I've carried through life with me since she said that, because so many occasions are joyful. But it's not complete joy because David's not here. But it's true joy. But it's true joy. At the same time, so many uh, times in life are sad. Like David's York site is very sad. Yet we come together as a family. We do. And that's joyful. And that's honoring David in a joyful way. So, yes. Now, I, I couldn't have said this years ago, yeah. right? This is, this is an evolving process. It's a journey. And, you know, had we made a wedding uh, a year after David died, I'm not sure that I could have put myself in that place. Well, you made a bar mitzvah three, made a bar three mitzvah months after. Six months later. Six months, yeah. And, I was blown um, away by that, by the way. And that was a joyful, joyful occasion. And I, I credit everybody who was there. Wow. And I credit my son, Shruggy, for making it joyful. Oh, well, he's a joyful kid. He's a joyful person. He's a man with four kids now, but I yes. mean, he's a very joyful person. Yes. And at the time, I said to him, if you want to change any aspect of your bar mitzvah, yeah. now that daddy's not here, we'll do whatever you want. Yes. And he said, what we were doing is what we are going to yeah, do. Yeah, he's an amazing guy. So, and that was from a 12-year-old again. So, Chav, will you see David again? Are you saying, will I feel him? In, in What's my, your belief in the afterlife? Oh, in the afterlife? Yeah, Definitely. will you see him again? Oh, okay. So that's a good thing. Definitely. Not only will I see him, he'll be there to greet me at 120. At the gates. At the gates. So, yes. so that, that, it's an interesting thing, is kind of inherent to your belief system. Definitely. That's a hopeful peace. Definitely. I mean, you're saying peace as in P-I-E-C-E, -E, but we for use, me it's a peace, P-E-A-C-E. -E. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess it's that means... a hopeful peace? Yes. So you're going to see mom again. She's going to drive you a little crazy. <laughs> but listen, you know what? This is a, a really important interview. 
and I think it's something that a lot of people will take uh, something out of. Um, it's also it's also a very serious one, but I I think it's important to say that you have a fun side to you, you have a silly side to you. Much of that is because of your kids. They're pretty silly. And and they have great senses of humor, and they take shots at each other. And you've had to roll with that, right? Yes. You've had to roll with that. I've had to, and I'm trying to become funnier myself. I think you're funny. (laughs) Do do you have any jokes that you tell? Is there a joke you tell? Um, Well, right now I'm I'm in a very serious frame of mind, so So it's hard to go from there to a joke. Okay, okay, Um, right. But I'm sure I do have some jokes up my sleeve. Right, no, no, I'm sure you do, and we'll bring you back for our joke <laughs> episode. But uh, but kudos to you, and accolades to you for standing upright and getting through your life in the way that you have to date, and until 120, like we say in Jewish, and raising your children and your grandchildren so beautifully. Uh, you're you're a pretty impressive human being. I, I I have told you this before, and I will say this um, on this show that I, I really don't know anybody who's evolved in the way that you have. Thank you. I, I really... Thank you. Yes. Well, I have to thank my children, too, for helping me so much evolve and, and helping me grow in my journey because I've always told them they are my greatest teachers. They are. I've learned so much from them. Yeah. And I, I like to think that I've grown a lot because of them. Um, so not only do I love them so much, but I have so much gratitude to them, and I'm so proud of them. That's and, a nice and, thing. And each one of them is so much like David. That's a nice thing to say. And it, and it's a nice way to finish off this uh, episode of Hat Radio. So thank you for being my guest. Thank you for having me. How, how was it? How was it? This was amazing. Yeah, did you enjoy it? This was really amazing. You did and a good job. Thank you so much. I think you're one of the best interviewers around. That's nice of you Good to say. Good luck. Good luck. Thank you have you. a great future ahead of you. Thank you. That's nice of you to say. So I want to thank all of our listeners as well for joining us. Uh, share this link because it's an important show. And it's really reflective of our mission statement on Had Radio. And again, that mission statement is to bring as much joy right. and positivity as we possibly can right. to this world. I interviewed uh, my dear friend Ellie Rubenstein a yes. couple episodes ago. And he said, I said, are you a spiritual leader inherently? He says, well, I am what people tell me I am. That <laughs> often happens in life. And people tell me that I bring joy uh, oh, to their lives beautiful. and I bring uh, some passion to their life. And I thought, yeah, that's a good thing. That's beautiful. And that's what we want to accomplish right here at And Hot we Radio. need that. We need that oh, in we our need that. world oh, very, big, very badly. Big time. I'm watching very the much. news and I'm watching uh, Netflix movies. And you know something? One after the other, murder and rape and pillaging and violence. Yes. Like what? Where are those movies? Where are those films? Where's that poetry of life? The wholesomeness. Yeah. So that's what I want this to be. I so wanted... kudos to you, around Thank for you. bringing this to Thank our you. world at a time when it's so badly needed. Honestly. And we don't focus enough on the good, and there is so much. Agreed, so agreed. thank you to you. And thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, we will have another episode coming up soon. I think I'm going to be interviewing Erwin um, Cutler, oh, who's beautiful. a nominee for a Nobel Peace Prize. He beautiful. said he would do the show. Well hey, better. Well deserved. <laughs> that will be one to listen to. That would to. be a good one. So yes. God bless, and once again, uh, thank you for giving us your time. Step inside my living room Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned 
Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the heart In the 